It's just the way it is, right? Um, the Peacemaker, we, uh, chapter 6, if you have a handout, there should be some handouts out there. Um, we're talking about a real change. As it gets to the end of chapter 6, we talk about confession and how confession brings freedom. And one of the things he makes a point of saying is, is that there, the final step to freedom is real change, that we need to actually commit ourselves to changing and not just talking about changing, but to actually changing. And, and that's really important for us uh, to take it seriously. So he makes several, several points. And if I can have some of, your, some, of your, uh, some of y'all help me by reading some of these verses. The first point he makes is that God is eager. God is eager to help us grow and change. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Cassie, can you read that for us? Excellent. It is God, uh, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do His good pleasure. So there is a uh, God is eager to do the work uh, of helping you change uh, in in your walk with God. Number two on that, the second point is to pray. Is to simply pray. Uh, thank God. Ask Him for strength. Ask Him to open your eyes. You need to go to God and, and really pray. This is a spiritual thing. This is not a um, uh, and habit forming, uh, uh, just a humanistic kind of process where you're just forming new habits and getting rid of old ones. This is a spiritual exercise that requires the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Number three is delight yourself in the Lord. Ephesians 1, 18 and 19. Who's got that verse looked up? Anybody? Yes, Patty. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what the riches are of the glory of His inheritance Okay, if having your eyes enlightened to see all these things that you may actually delight yourself in the beauty, beautiful things that God gives to us and, and, and to see His plan for you and not think of God's plan as a bad plan, but to understand it is a good thing. And that is wonderfully described by the Apostle Paul there in Ephesians chapter 1. Um, he also makes the point here in Romans. Let's look at Romans 8, uh, verses 6 through 8. Does somebody have that for me? Okay, yes, sir. For the carnal minded is death, but the spiritual minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, but is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. And the point here is that we need to study because transformed thinking matters. And so if you look at these, as God has helped us to change, really, these are uh, pray, delight, Study are the first really big three here. Pray, delight, study. And then the last one, who's got the last verse? It's um, Philippians 4.9. Yes, sir, Charles. The things which you've learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. The things which you heard, saw in me, these what? Do. do. So the idea here is to practice. Okay, God is eager to help you, so you need to pray, delight, study, and practice. And, and as you do this, it will help you in your growth. So put into action what you've learned. Don't just 
talk about it. This is a big problem people have, is they love to talk about things, but not do things. And, and so the Scripture says you need to actually do things in order to see real change. Any questions? We talked about um, a lot of this stuff earlier when it came to confession, and we didn't really get into this last part. I wanted to at least touch on it before we uh, moved on to chapter 7. Any comments or questions on, chapter, on the chapter 6 stuff we talked about so far? Anybody? Okay. Let's move into chapter 7. He talks about uh, confrontation and how to deal with problems. This is called Just Between the Two of Us. Matthew 18 and verse 15. I put that at the top of this chapter here so you could see this is like one of the main themes of this, of this chapter. I'm going to read this. Look at it on your sheet. It says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. What is the goal of confrontation? The goal of confrontation. Well, the goal of confrontation in this passage is, is what? Restoration, right? The goal of confrontation is not to be right or not to put someone in their place. It's not to say who's boss. It's restoration. It's the reconciliation, or reconciliation is another word you could use here. Reconciliation between two parties that are estranged. And he says, he says that uh, the goal is not condemnation, but restoration. So the context of Matthew 18 is, is the idea of, of uh, the wandering sheep, pulling them back into the fold. So if someone sins against you, your goal of going to them is not to get them to stop doing what they're doing necessarily. It's to restore them to you, okay? What are some ways of speaking with others about their faults? I'm not going to go through all these verses. I listed them for you there. But in the book, he mentions there are several ways of talking to people about their faults, and he lists them here, such as confessing, teaching, instructing, reasoning with, showing, encouraging, correcting, warning, admonishing, and rebuking. And, and again, we could get into all these. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, just as a way of saying that it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of a thing, right? You don't, have, you, don't, you don't do the same kind of confrontation around every single person who sins against you. You deal with problems in different ways. So just keep that in mind as we go forward. And as you have questions about this, feel free to raise your hand. I'll be happy. We'll be happy to stop and, and discuss. Okay, so what are some considerations when addressing someone's fault? If we're going to pick how we are to go about dealing with someone, what should we do? The first thing here, let's look at a few verses. 1 Timothy 5.1. Uh, yes, sir, Dan. And then Titus 1.13. can look that one up. Yes, sir, Dave. Okay, Dan, go ahead and read that for us. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers. Okay. And then Titus 1.13. That's okay. Dave's got it right here. This witness is true, wherefore rebuke them sharply, Okay, so we have some people here who he's saying rebuke sharply, and here he's saying rebuke an elder. How? As a father, As a father gently, right? So the way that uh, Sandy puts in the book is that you should adjust the intensity to fit the other person's position and the urgency of the situation. So let's walk through this. Adjust the intensity of your confrontation to match the other person's position and the urgency of a situation. 
So when my child is running towards the street, there's going to be a high level of intensity that comes out of my voice, and that is not wrong because I am communicating something about the urgency of the situation. They need to stop now, right? And there's some people who I've had conversations with, and it, it breaks my heart. I'm like, you've got to stop now. Like, I'm very, very urgent with them. Most of the time, I'm not that way. I think if you're always urgent all the time, what does that communicate? You're always urgent. <laughs> it's like, if everything's important, nothing's important, right? If you play, if everything's loud, nothing, nothing is loud. Everything is the same. So we have to be careful not to always, and I, I struggle with this too, because I can tend to be way too intense when it's really not necessary right? And, and so he says, adjust the intensity based on the position and the urgency of the situation. So can you think of situations where you might need to be more relaxed when you're maybe dealing with someone who is doing something wrong or has sinned against you, and, and it wouldn't necessarily be wrong? Somebody just makes an untimely remark. Yeah, you can even let it go. You, can, you don't necessarily even have to directly confront them. You can even um, let them know that you're a, there, there's ways of doing this. Um, letting somebody know that what they did was wrong, but not in a way that embarrasses them or not in a way that is super intense. It just, maybe that was not quite the best thing. Let's keep going. I think you'll find some more here. Number two, he says, considerations when addressing someone's faults. Don't let disagreements devolve. Don't let disagreements devolve into quarreling or arguing or foolish controversies. So we see those verses there that talk about this. Don't, don't, don't do that. Does anybody want to read Philippians 2.13? Yes, sir. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I may have given you the wrong verse there. Um, sorry about that. I don't know what I was thinking there. Maybe it was Philippians 2. might have been 1 through 3. I'm not sure. Let's look, at, let's look at another one there. Can you read 2 Timothy 2, 23 to 24? Can you go over there and grab that one? Or can somebody grab that one for me? Okay, Sebastian, I'm sorry, Chris, about that. Yeah, have nothing to do with these quarrels and foolish controversies. So when you're confronting somebody, when you're talking to somebody, don't let it devolve, is the word I like to use, into spiral out of control into just arguing. And, uh, and then thirdly, consider confronting indirectly. This is the third thing, as Jesus sometimes did. So just because the Scripture says to go one to someone doesn't mean that you have to go one-on-one all the time. In fact, not every, he puts here, not every confrontation must be done one-on-one at first. Scripture gives many examples of people using others to help with an initial meeting. It's not ideal, but it might actually be necessary. How, give me an example of where Jesus maybe confronted someone indirectly. Can you think of an example? Um, I'll give you one. Oh, go ahead. Uh, It's exactly what he uses in the book, is this idea of, of Jesus says, hey, go get your husband. And she's like, oh, um, so I don't have a husband. He's like, you're right, you don't have a husband. You had five husbands, and the one you're living with is not your husband. So uh, he, 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 he draws out from her something. Rather than 
confronting her over her sin, he uses this indirect way of approaching. So it isn't always wrong. Also, think about how Jesus, uh, how else did Jesus uh, approach things indirectly? Yeah, he, he, he says those of you without sin, whoever is without a sin, let him cast the first stone. That's, that, is, that is very good. It's a way of showing their, their sinfulness and no one could condemn. How about just the way he told parables, right? Jesus told parables and there are people, some people are walking around saying, what's this guy doing talking about farmers? And other people are saying, he's speaking spiritual truth, right? So Jesus, Jesus often, um, there's also other stories in the Bible. Esther's approach to the king is another great example of someone who do, does things indirectly. Um, there's a lot of biblical examples of intercession. Um, I had a list here. I didn't put them in your notes here, but um, scripture gives a lot of examples of people who use an intercessor, such as Jacob sending gifts ahead of meeting Esau. We have Joseph's brothers having someone appeal to him on their behalf for mercy. We have Abigail, who goes on behalf of her husband, uh, the fool Nabal, and, be, and, and appeals to David on his behalf. She says, no one will listen. He won't listen to anyone, so please listen to me. Joab enlists a woman to approach David to soften his heart towards Absalom. We even have Barnabas, who intercedes for Paul on behalf of the early church. So intercession is something that happens often on a regular basis, and so we shouldn't necessarily think that just because the Scripture says we have to go address something, that it has to be you addressing that situation um, directly. Sometimes an indirect approach can be warranted as long as you're dealing with it um, and not just letting it slide. What are some scenarios that would warn an intercessor? That's our next section. What are some scenarios that would warrant an intercessor? I tell you, I had not thought of this first one, but some of you who work in missions would think of this right off the bat. Some cultures are custom, it's customary to handle problems through intermediaries. And if you're dealing with someone from a different culture, and that's how they deal with problems, if you go to them and try to handle a problem directly, it could end up becoming very, very offensive to them, and it would shut down any opportunity for resolution. So if someone comes from a culture where they handle problems through intermediaries, uh, consider doing that as well. Or if going privately will cause that person to lose face. Um, again, the idea of embarrassing someone. Number three there, another reason he gives for people might, uh, scenarios that might warrant an intercessor would be when either person might feel intimidated by the other person. So, um, boss or um, someone you just would, would intimidate you. Um, you just don't feel like you could really say. And th- in fact, we have this at, at Harvest. We have this at our church where uh, our employees and pastors um, who work for me and work under me and work, you know, they're, I'm their boss as well as their pastor. Um, they have pe- someone on the, on the, sh- on the uh, deacon board who they can go to if, they, if I'm doing something that's, that's over the line. Like they know, I tell them this. I'm like, you know, you can go talk to so-and-so and that they, they, they will listen to you and they will hear you. And so we have a pa- uh, deacon in charge of pastoral relations and that's part of what he does. And so the guys know this, and they know that if I'm requiring too much of them, or if I'm being mean, or if I'm a bad guy, they, can, they, can, they don't have to come directly to me because there's, there's a, it's, it might be too difficult for them to come directly and confront me. Um, so they have that opportunity. Um, although I have to say, our, our crew, I don't think they would have too much problem with that, but, but, uh, but that, is, that is the case, just in case, I'm, I, you know, because I'm very intimidating uh, personality here. Um, uh, fourthly there, when abuse has taken place and the abuser might use the conversation to manipulate the victim, 
okay? When the abuse has taken place, um, very often abuse relationships are, are extremely difficult to untangle because of the history and because of the uh, problems there. If there is sin, it needs to be addressed, but often the way to address it is not the abuser going to the abused and addressing it directly one-on-one in private. Normally it doesn't work out very well, and sometimes they actually end up, the abuser, that he's very good, normally it's he, but it can be a she, are very good at turning that around back on the, abu- the one who was sinned against and, and, and blaming everything on them, and so they walk away thinking, wait a second, I just, I, I, I went into this trying to help this person see their sin and, and confront them over something, and now I leave being the one who's accused of everything. You know, now I'm the, I'm the sinner and they're innocent. So uh, often you need to have a third, uh, a third party to help you with that if you've been in that kind of a situation. Does that raise any questions or any comments from anybody? I saw some people nodding. Uh, manipulate, manipulate the victim. So when abuse has taken place and the abuser might use the conversation to manipulate um, the victim. Uh, or just turn it back on them. That's typically what it is, right? Is, is they, they turn it back on. And, uh, and if you've never uh, been in that situation where you've been abused, I think it would, it's very difficult to understand their, the mindset of someone who's been uh, put under that for a long time. And it's very, very difficult. So try to be understanding uh, of the hesitancy if you're helping someone through this. Or when the third party has a much better relationship with the person than you do and is willing to raise the issue. So you have a friend and you're, or you have a, uh, you know, and you're, you have someone who's sinned and you're like, man, I just, I don't feel like I have a very good relationship with them. But somebody else has, like, hey, I'll go to them. They know me. I know them. We are great. I'll go talk to them about it. That's a totally fine situation, a very successful way if there's an intercessor who can, who can step up and do that. So um, the point of all this is to say that when you address someone's fault, sometimes you need to use an intercessor, and that's okay. And just you need to not, the main point is don't just drop it. Any questions so far or thoughts, comments? Pretty straightforward. We have a very wise daughter that when she's with us, and Sue and I start disagreeing about something, <laughs> she'll step in and say, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. And it, and it really, really helps. Yeah, it helps to have a, a third party there to kind of help if there's disagreement between people, somebody who knows both sides and who can help with that. Absolutely. It's great to have a, a person like that. You're very blessed for that. Uh, let's look at uh, the reasons to initiate reconciliation. You might say to yourself, well, I don't really like this idea. I, I would rather have an intercessor do all my work. I don't want to initiate any reconciliation. I just want to forget about it. Well, let's look at what the Scripture says about this. Uh, Matthew 5, 23 through 24. Jimmy, please read that for us, sir. There, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First to be reconciled to your brother, and then to come and offer your gift. Okay, so what are the reasons that we should initiate reconciliation? Well, reason number one is because Jesus commands us to. He says, if you are standing at the altar, ready to worship the Lord, and you remember that someone has something against you, leave your gift at the altar, go be reconciled, and then give your gift. What's the implication? What's the teaching of that passage? What's that telling you about worship and about, and about uh, reconciliation? Reconciliation is a priority over worship. You can't worship right if you have unreconciled issues. He's like, don't, don't give me your money. 
if you're unreconciled. Go get reconciled first and then come and worship, but get reconciled first. Jesus commands us to, to go initiate reconciliation. Uh, secondly, Luke 6, 32 through 36 um, Who has that one? Anybody? Luke chapter 6. Let me look at it here. But if you love those who love you, what credit is it to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing. In return, your reward will be great. You will be the sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Did you notice the theme in the, those verses about how, how, what credit is that to you? What, what do you think He's saying there? What, what? Yeah, so the point and the blank is, is that seeking peace with a brother enhances our Christian witness. Because it is, a, it is a good witness to other people if you'll be reconciled to other people. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Everybody does that. But if you are getting reconciled with people, that's unusual. And it's a great testimony for you to get reconciled with people, even if they're unbelievers. We'll talk about that uh, later in this chapter. But the idea of, of dealing with people enhances your Christian witness. And then um, he says next, you can have a peace of mind to face complaints someone might have against you. You will have a clear conscience. If you go, you will have a clear conscience. Because you dealt with it. And so you can, when someone has a complaint against you, you can be like, look, I've dealt with this. I don't have any, I don't have any problem. I have a clear conscience. And it demonstrates Matthew 5, 21 through 22. I feel like we've already read this verse, have we? Did we do it on the other? No, we haven't. Matthew 5. Yes, Valerie. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Yeah, it's, you should show care for your brother who's caught up in anger. This is showing the, the downward trend of anger. And if you want to interrupt your brother's downward fall towards anger, it shows love. So it demonstrates love. That's your blank. It demonstrates love for your brother. Um, and you're going to care enough about them that you're going to yell stop when they're running towards the road, right? You're going to interrupt their descent into that, what he says there, if you, you know, a judgment that's coming for those who, 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 are, uh, who are angry in their hearts. So um, you need to be willing to initiate reconciliation. One more section here. Uh, what sins, or what, when sins, I should say, are too serious to overlook? The Bible talks about uh, love covers a multitude of sins. But in, in, Genesis, in Luke 17, 3, Jesus commands us to confront a brother who has sinned. So when should we confront? We should confront a brother who has sinned how should we, when should we confront? I have several uh, kind of examples here or things that the Bible gives us uh, er, uh, times when we should confront. Look at Romans 2. Who has Romans 2, 23 through 24? This is a good passage to have in the... Let's see here. We'll keep, yes, ma'am, Patty. Romans 2, 23 and 24. 
So the name of God is blasphemed. Our, our sin can dishonor God. And so you have to ask yourself, is what they're doing dishonoring to God? Um, this, these are the questions you ought to bring up before you uh, just decide to overlook a sin. Because we can overlook all kinds of sin. The, sin, the, the one I often give when I'm um, teaching this in intro classes, I talk about, you know, when I'm here by myself all week, I, I, I get used to nobody being here. And so I move around this building really quickly. I walk really fast. I have a lot of things to do, so I walk quickly wherever I go. And I, I remember very early uh, as a pastor working here of, of almost running into some people uh, when church was here because I was so used to just taking those corners like a race car, you know, just going around the corner, hugging the, the edge, and, whoa, there's somebody there. So, <laughs> so um, I, 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 you know, what if, what if this was something I did never realized I was doing? And what if I was a reckless, you know, uh, um, wrecking ball everywhere I went around church on Sunday, and here comes Pastor Marshall around the corner, bam, knocking over a little old lady, you know, and, and you see this, you're like, oh, this is a problem. You know, what if it happens to you? So what if I go around the corner and I'm just oblivious? I'm, I'm busy. I'm thinking about something. I'm not even thinking about you. It's not like a sin that I'm, I'm committing necessarily. It's like a sin of omission, if you think of that. Like I'm just being selfish. I'm not thinking about other people. And I go around the corner and Dave's there. And I walk right around the corner and Dave is like, whoa, surprised. And I don't even notice he's there. And so he has a, a couple things to think about. One, do I need to approach Pastor Marshall about this? Because you know, that was, that was really selfish of him, and, and he was not thinking of other people. Um, is this sin dishonoring God? Probably not. Probably not. I'm not, dishon- I'm not sitting there swearing. I'm not walking around the church swearing or wearing a t-shirt that has bad words on it or, or ha- you know, doing things that are, that are dishonoring God in a public setting. Um, is, is it damaging our relationship? Pro- probably not. Probably not. It hasn't damaged our relationship because it wasn't done out of malice. But look at number three. Is the sin hurting others? Maybe. Maybe. And maybe he says, you know what? If I don't say something, he's going to hit that little old lady going around the corner and she's going to fall over and she might break something. And that, that needs to, we need to talk to him. Like I, I, he might not want to, but I think in this kind of scenario, it's completely appropriate for him to come to me and say, you know, your, your sin actually might be harming other people in this scenario. And there's some verses there. Proverbs 10, 17, 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 4, talk about this. 1 Corinthians 5 is talking about the man in the church who is involved in immorality. So is the sin hurting others is, is a real good question to ask. Is this something, if it doesn't stop, it's going, somebody's going to get hurt? Um, and the fourth one, let's look at these verses. Leviticus nineteen seventeen. Who's got that? Leviticus 19. Okay, Valerie. And then the next one, uh, Proverbs 24, 11, and 12. A couple more. Okay. Uh, you shall surely, uh, read it one more time. I'm sorry. Okay, because, yeah, because of him. Very good. Proverbs 24, 11, and 12. Yes, sir, Jimmy. Deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling in the slaughter. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart consider it. He who keeps your soul does. He not know it. And he will not render to each man according to his deeds. 
Yeah, so the person who is going towards danger, you're supposed to rescue his soul, right? If you, if, and so the last point is, is this sin hurting that offender? The person who's sinning, is it hurting them? You see people with a really bad habit that's, that's going to hurt them or a really bad thing that they're doing. You, you see somebody, let's say they're driving really recklessly, and you're, and you're, you're saying they could hurt somebody or they're going to hurt. They drive recklessly in our parking lot. You know, you see somebody just blast out of the parking lot. You think there are kids here. They could hurt somebody. And they could hurt themselves if they're driving recklessly. Maybe it's something you go and talk to them about out of love in your heart towards them because you're rescuing them from their own, from their own selves, from their own danger. Galatians 6.1 says, if you see someone overtaken in a fall, you who are spiritual should restore such a one with a spirit of meekness. The last thing I want to touch on is this point here is that confronting sin does not give license to be a busybody. Um, because I love this quote, anyone who is eager to go and show a brother his sin is probably disqualified from doing so. And I think, I think that's the point, is that we're not to be walking around like, oh, who can I confront today? Oh, yeah, I can't wait to go and confront so-and-so. I've been wanting to confront Casey for a long time. Here we go, Casey. We're going to confront, and I'm going to deal with you after the service, you know, where I'm going to confront Matt over here over something. I am just excited to go to church so I can confront people. That is not the attitude. Right? That is a, or a busybody, if you're like, ooh, who can, you know, you're always looking for something. That is the opposite of, a, of you are, you, this is someone who has, who is not desiring to do this. It is almost like forced upon you, or, or it comes from the love that's in your heart, not because you're excited to do so. So I, just as a challenge, this is not a, for us to go around and start confronting each other all the time. The majority of sin ought to be dealt with by the Spirit of God in our hearts privately. Uh, but these are, these are situations where God uses people in order to help deal with this. Any comments or questions thus far? We're going to stop right here, and we'll pick it up uh, next week. But it, what, what are the thoughts or questions do you have about, this is a very tricky topic, because we don't normally like to do it, but we need to make sure we're all on the same page about what it means and what we're trying to do. Anybody miss a blank? Yeah, Jenna. Oh. <laughs> or, you know, who might have a better relationship uh, of our motherly authority. Interesting. But, you know, this isn't just pulling in whoever you want that might have authority in the person's life that you want to target, you know. Interesting, yeah. I have to think about that. It's really interesting. Because <laughs> I could definitely see how that could be a real problem, but also a help for some. Like, there might be a scenario where you need to do that, but I could also see where that could be really irritating, right? You told her what? You brought her into this? How dare you? Yes. That was kind of one of my questions. I could, have, I could see about the abuser or the cultural thing, but the other ones, it feels like it is tricky because you have that real blurry line between gossiping about the situation yeah. and, and just getting yeah. over your discomfort and just and just doing it. I think that, yeah, I think the goal of the book is what's going to give us the highest possibility for reconciliation. Um, and, and, but I agree with you. And I, I don't agree with it. I think you're probably right. I think that the book obviously is not scripture, right? We don't have to abide by everything in it. And you're, you're more than welcome to disagree with those points like that. Absolutely. 
if uh, I, but um, I think the point he's, he's just trying to present in a very practical sense of ways that, that we can do the confronting if the confronting one-on-one is really not going to happen. Either it's not going to happen or it's not going to go over well. Because we all know there are certain people, if they confront us about things, if we're in a bad place, um, maybe we shouldn't say it that way. There are people who, if I were to confront, would not take it very well. And I don't know why that is. Personality clashes, maybe? And so I think that's what he's trying to address. But yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely a disagree with it all you want and, and say that, you know, that's totally fair game. Yeah. Good comment. Just to be clear, I'm not saying you should go to your mother-in-law. I don't think that's, that is, that is, quali- that does not qualify. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And thank you that we have this challenge. I, we don't like this kind of stuff, Lord. Normally it's not fun at all to have to deal with people who are in sin or caught in sin. But Lord, help, help us when we have to, when we're called to do this, I pray, Lord, you, number one, you give us the grace to do it uh, the right way. And number two, I pray we do it with humility, knowing that, that we are all sinners and none of us is above the other. And we're not um, coming from a position of condemnation or judgment, but of reconciliation and restoration. So help us to do that when we confront each other and help each other to walk.